Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, OSHA's Top Violations, What You Need to Be Looking For, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well amid the COVID-19 pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I wanna go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication doesn't mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey that will appear on a separate screen. We will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. You may also receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Travis Roden and Ed Zaleski. Travis is a senior editor at EHS at JJ Keller. He has worked with the organization since 1997 and specializes in the areas of safety management and auditing. His previous experience includes working as a safety manager for a Midwest-based manufacturer of heavy-duty trucks and buses. Ed also serves as a senior editor at EHS at JJ Keller researching and creating content for a variety of safety-related topics while contributing to a number of products. He specializes in issues including walking working surfaces, powered industrial trucks, and injury illness record keeping. Again, we thank you all for being here today. Travis, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thank you, Kevin, and uh, thanks everyone for joining us today to talk about um, kind of a hot topic that's always um, an area that's of interest to safety professionals. And that is, you know, what, what OSHA's top violations are. And they actually just released the, the preliminary data for uh, fiscal year 2020. And um, so you may have seen that list floating around. That's basically what we're going off of today. But what we're gonna try to do is uh, put, put that list um, into some context, give you some background, you know, as to why maybe they're finding a particular violation a lot, as well as where they're finding those types of violations. So, um, you know, we'll hopefully we'll uh, we'll give you a lot of uh, a lot of good information here that you can take back and compare to your your own your own uh, operations. Um, one thing uh, to keep in mind, and this is uh, just kind of a it varies a little bit year by year, but uh, recent data for uh, fiscal year 20 shows that in every every in, out of the uh, all the inspections that OSHA conducted last year, uh, they actually found violations in 70 approximately 70 percent of those inspections. So about 30 percent of the time, uh, no violations were found. And the other 70 um, percent, the average was two to three per inspection. So um, just kind of keep that in mind as we go along here. And um, 
we'll, uh, we'll delve in a little bit. So looking at it by the numbers, um, these are average numbers. They're fairly representative each year, approximately 75,000 OSHA inspections if you count federal OSHA, as well as inspections from states like California, Minnesota, and Michigan that have their own approved state OSHA plans. It was a little bit less this year just because of the pandemic. Um, federal OSHA, I think, uh, was down five or 6,000 inspections, but um, they still were able to conduct uh, around 27,000 27, uh, inspections. Some of those using remote uh, means. They weren't all on site like you might traditionally uh, have experienced. And that's something that's still going on now. I think they're trying to get back to, you know, conducting fully on site investigations where it's possible. But um, in a lot of cases, still, you know, due to COVID concerns, some of the inspections are being. So, you know, just looking at kind of where OSHA did uh, do some work last year, uh, a lot of it did impact, you know, they were impacted by COVID-19, but they actually used that to target uh, some, some areas. So that's why you're going to see some of the violations as high as you do on the list because, uh, you know, the nature of the pandemic, OSHA did uh, put some of their resources into healthcare. Uh, into respiratory protection, as well as taking on complaints that, you know, I think tripled or quadrupled during the pandemic. So, um, so there were more un, um, unprogrammed inspections, if you will, based on either a, an actual injury or illness or a complaint than a typical year. So that, that definitely, you know, impacts the numbers a little bit, but um, for the most part, you know, the top 10 are going to be the top 10. Some of the some of the numbers shift around a little bit, but um, that's what you can pretty much expect. So we'll just take a look at those right now. And here are your top 10 for uh, fiscal year 2020. And a key point here that I, I would note, this top 10, and this is the one that you see announced from, from OSHA a lot. You'll see these top 10s. Just keep in mind, that this top 10 list covers all sizes of employers. So we're talking the very smallest employers, you know, two to three, two to three employees, maybe a construction contractor, all the way up to your largest employers. So, you know, that may be a reason why you might see certain standards every single year. You would think, you know, hey, why, why are we still not getting the HASCOM written program? Everybody should know about that. Well, a lot of the smaller employers don't know about that. So they end up getting cited. Same thing with fall protection. So that's a little bit why you see the things the way you do. And uh, we'll try to put some perspective um, with that as to what happens if you dig a little bit deeper. And for that, I'm going to, um, to turn it over to Ed to kind of provide some interesting uh, perspective on this. Thank you, Travis. So as Travis said, the list he just showed you was all sizes employers. So just for, for interest here, we thought we'd give you the top 10 violations for some larger companies. This one has 250 or more workers. Now, the first thing you're going to notice if you're familiar with 1910 versus 1926, 
we don't have any 1926 construction violations on here. Not a lot of employers that size, uh, 250 more in construction. <clears throat> so everything suddenly is general industry. You also see some things jumping around. Uh, respiratory protection is pretty up, pretty up near the top here. Comes up to number two, and again, that one has moved up a little bit, but. Not surprising that things like lockout, tagout, machine guarding, powered industrial trucks, those those stay up pretty high as well. Larger companies tend to, obviously, manufacturers have machines, you have <clears throat> material handling equipment and things like that. So it's kind of an interesting, different way to look at it. And, you know, I was noticing, as Travis was saying about size of companies, it's also how long somebody's in business. You know, new businesses are coming up all the time. Um, smaller companies especially, and, and sometimes they don't last, they disappear. But by the time you get to a company this size, they've probably been around for a couple decades. So it's interesting that the same things keep coming up. Now, one other thing we want to look at is, <clears throat> oh, that serious reporting injuries also made the list here. Failure to report serious injuries at number six, kind of an interesting one. That's the requirement to report uh, fatality, hospitalization, things like that. So that's an interesting one to make on here. Uh, if, even if you're aware of that requirement, if you don't report it in a timely manner, you can get stuck with that. Now on the next slide, we're gonna show you the top 10 violations by penalty amount. Just another way to look at it. And again, a very similar, a lot of the same numbers in here, uh, but here you see fall protection by construction, still up number one, high penalties, lockout, tagout, machine guarding. Uh, very similar again to the other lists, but Interestingly, lockout, tagout, and machine guarding jump up near the top. Now, one reason for that is that violations of those standards are almost always cited as serious. You've got a significant injury potential. They're high gravity, so they tend to get higher penalty amounts. The other one you'll see here at number six is the general duty clause makes the list. Now, that's sort of OSHA's catch-all standard for serious hazards. They can't use it for just anything, but one of the reasons it makes the list by penalty amount is that a violation to be cited there has to be serious. And so if the general duty clause gets cited, it's probably going to be fairly expensive. You know, speaking of money, let's talk about how OSHA assesses their penalties. Penalty amounts really come down to how OSHA evaluates or views the violation. So we, we sometimes get asked, okay, what is the fine amount for XYZ particular issue. And the reality is we don't know. It depends on how OSHA classifies the violation. If they call it a serious, then the penalty amounts are, are much higher than if it's an other than serious. Uh, and if they classify it as a repeat or willful, then it can be much, much higher. You see things start jumping up over $100,000. And then, of course, the agency assigns a gravity-based penalty on the probability that someone would get hurt and the severity of an injury if something should happen. So again, we get back to machine guarding, lockout, tagout, you're talking potential for amputations here. So there's a lot of variables in terms of you know how much these violations are gonna cost a given employer. Depends on the company's history, the size, the nature of the violation, and even your good faith efforts, uh, things like that. So the same violation at a small company is probably going to have a lower fine, maybe much lower, than a similar violation at a larger establishment. So that's sort of an introduction to the topic. And with that, we're going to get into the top violations that OSHA cited. 
we're going to be using the data for all employers, that initial list, because we know we have a lot of different sizes of employers listening and probably some people in the construction industry as well, so we don't want to cut them out. And then near the end, we'll tell you a way you can drill down to the data to uh, get a little more specific information particular to your operations, your industry, and your size. So, Travis, take it away. All right. Thank you, Ed. So, uh, yeah, number one on the list is come is comes from the construction industry. It is a construction standard. And uh, for any of you who've been following this list over the over the decades, uh, this particular violation uh, has held down the top spot for years. Uh, if, if your company is engaged in construction work, obviously fall protection needs to be top of mind for, for a couple of reasons. First, working at heights without proper fall protection is obviously seriously dangerous to workers. And the second part of it, many violations related to fall protection are extremely easy for OSHA inspectors to spot if they happen to drive past a job site or if a member of the public calls the agency to report what they've seen. Um, so a lot, of, uh, a lot of these get cited just because someone was driving by and saw someone standing on a roof with no fall protection doing work. So uh, that's, that's a big, big part of it. So a little bit more about what they're finding. Um, and the requirement itself. So for construction work, OSHA requires fall protection when working at heights of six feet or more. And the type of fall protection that's allowed depends on the structure and the work that's being done. In some cases, railings may be required. Uh, in a lot of cases, personal fall arrest systems, uh, warning lines or, or other approach lines may be allowed. And what we see with these violations from the data is that many, many of the violations involve uh, roofing work, and that includes low slope roofs as well. Sometimes we think of those as being exempt, but um, it's, it's really not. So um, other, other items, other types of work where you see this, elevator shafts uh, certainly can pose fall hazards, a lot of uh, injuries and fatalities each year because of that. So. Employers need to evaluate the work being done in light of the OSHA requirements, which again, you can see at the top is 1926.501. And just a note about residential construction. Uh, there has been some flexibility in terms of what is allowed in these situations, but OSHA has consistently found workers exposed to falls and has issued um, residential employers with high a very high rate of fines um, and a high rate of violations. So providing fall protection obviously is a big part of all of this. Another big compliance issue related to falls is when the actual working surface does not have the strength um, to support employees or the, the structural integrity. So OSHA requires this and employers engaged in construction work certainly should look at where employees will be working and ensure safety before that work actually begins. Now, if we look at the construction fall protection violations by industry, which is what this slide is all about. Again, these are construction standards, probably no surprises here. Roofing contractors were hit the hardest 
uh, receiving nearly half of the total violations. And the other industry groups cited um, mostly handle construction or contracting work. So I don't think that's a surprise, but it is kind of important to look at not only the standard that's being cited, but where it's being cited. So we'll try to do that for each of these as we go along. So coming in at number two most cited, and number one, if you happen to be in general industry, um, OSHA's Hazard Communication or HASCOM standard. Now that standard requires employers to implement a program to inform employees of hazards of chemicals that they're exposed to on the job. And the standard has several requirements and some of the main, main ones are also some of the ones that OSHA finds deficiencies in most often. One of the biggest uh, tr trouble spots and the one that was cited most frequently under this standard is not having an, an adequate written program. And what that program is, it's really a written record of what your company has done to comply with the standard. Um, so that program will mainly consist of how you manage your safety data sheets or SDSs, labeling system, as well as your training. And uh, one of the requirements under the standard is to compile a list of all the chemicals used in your facility. And that's what's referred to as a chemical inventory. And that, that trips up a lot of employers because it's certainly a daunting task, but it is a requirement to, to do that. So we know creating that initial list is the hardest, but certainly important to make sure that you update it and have a solid procedure for keeping it current. Um, one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is we've got companies going out and buying all, all sorts of hospital grade uh, cleaners or disinfectants. And um, you, know, you have to take a look at those and make sure you've got the proper safety data sheets and, and are training workers on those hazards. Even, even something like a common household cleaner can trigger HASCOM if a worker is using it differently than it would be used at home. For example, if you've got someone who's cleaning stair railings, you know, three times every hour uh, with a hazardous chemical, then it's, you know, that's probably going to be covered because uh, you wouldn't be doing it, using it that way if that frequent, if you were using it at home. So definitely don't forget about chemicals when you're chemical cleaners, I should say, when you're, uh, when you're looking at this. Labeling is another common trouble spot. All containers, hazardous chemicals, except for secondary containers for immediate use, need to be labeled with the information on the chemicals identity and hazards. So that's a big, a big one as well, where things get transferred and left alone for, um, you know, two or three days in a container, and nobody knows what's in it. Uh, another common violation under Hascom not having safety data sheets for each chemical or else the sheets not being readable, readily available to employees. So that is a requirement because um, those sheets provide really the detailed information that employees need to know uh, in order to protect themselves. And there are a lot of different systems you can use for that, online systems, electronic systems, but you just need to make sure if you do go that route that employees have access to it when they need it. Um, there was a citation not too long ago where a company kept their, um, 
safety data sheets on a computer in the supervisor's office. Problem was, whenever the supervisor was not in the office, the office was locked. And uh, so employees had no access to the safety data sheets during that time. So we certainly can't do that. So those are really the big ones under HASCOM, written program, labeling, safety data sheets, and training. Now, as we mentioned, written program is top of the list. So if you need help in this area, the JJ Keller Safety Management Suite contains over 100 safety plan templates you can use to customize for your company. And since today's sponsor is the JJ Keller Safety Management Suite, we'd like to offer our attendees a complimentary trial to this new innovative service. If we could launch that poll, um, you can use that um, to select your interests. Um, and as a thank you, we'll also email you a digital copy of our white paper, OSHA's top 10 violations. This white paper shows what OSHA inspectors are citing and provides detail on how to identify and uh, correct these violations. So it'll be, the white paper is a little bit um, like what we're covering today, but it provides a little bit more in depth on certain, um, certain topics. So if we take a look here, uh, moving on, at uh, the HASCOM violations by industry, maybe a little surprising here to see masonry contractors at the top. But if you remember, the HASCOM standard is one of the general industry standards that actually applies to construction too. And uh, these workers obviously have some hazardous chemical exposure. Same thing with the printing industry and even hotels, um, surprisingly, frequent violations uh, as far as uh, hazard communication. And that's mainly due to your housekeeping and cleaning materials, as well as uh, maintenance, the types of chemicals and uh, substances that maintenance employees use. Ed, do you want to take us into number three? Thank you, Travis. We're back to respiratory protection here. We had some uh, thoughts on this earlier. And again, we're kind of jumping back and forth. You'll see some are construction, some are general industry. And I would point out, of course, even if you're a general industry employer, certain types of renovation work you might be doing uh, can count as construction as well. So don't just think, well, we're, we don't have to worry about 191026 because we're a factory. Uh, depending on the kind of work you're doing, renovation, even some heavy painting can be considered construction work. But for our third most frequently cited here, and again, we're on general industry, we have respiratory protection. Of course, when employees are exposed to air quality hazards, you may need some type of respirator. And when that's required, as we talked with HASCOM, OSHA requires a written program to show how you're implementing the various parts of the standard. Uh, it, it needs to address a lot of different areas, how you select respirators, how you do medical evaluations and conduct fit tests, how you want the respirators used. Uh, you need to have cleaning and maintenance schedules. Oddly, one of the common violations is having uh, unsanitary respirators. Uh, you need to ensure air quality if you have an atmosphere-supplied respirator. And, of course, there's training and annual retraining. And you've got to keep that program evaluated as, as conditions in the workplace change. <clears throat> so, you know, even before you can comply with this standard, you first need a good assessment to your exposures. 
that may require having an industrial hygienist come in and determine what are the levels that our employees are exposed to and what level of protection or type of protection is appropriate or necessary for those levels. But even aside from all that, a common trouble spot we see is just the use of dust masks or particulate respirators. Uh, N95s are the most common, and I think they entered the public lexicon about a year ago when <clears throat> COVID hit and everybody was talking N95s. A lot of employers have N95s as their only required respirator use, but the problem is those are considered respirators. And so if they are required, either because of breathing hazards or just because you require them for some other reason, you still need a full written program. Now there is an exception for voluntary use of dust masks. If employees do it for comfort only, maybe someone works outdoors and they have allergies, so they choose to wear one. Well, in that case, you can simply provide employees with a one-page handout from Appendix D of the standard. But that can only be followed if you can prove there's no possibility of overexposure. Uh, basically, you've still got to verify that that voluntary use isn't going to introduce new hazards. Another common trouble spot, frankly, is just not having employees medically evaluated to ensure that they're physically capable of using the equipment. And that's a requirement because respirators place a big stress on the body. If you've ever worn one, you know this. They're hard to breathe through sometimes. So OSHA requires a medical evaluation. That can either be through a questionnaire, a specific one that's in the standard, or that gets reviewed by a medical professional, or you can send the people in for an actual medical evaluation. And there's some pros and cons of each. Um, the questionnaire might be simpler and shorter and faster, but if there's a need for a follow-up, you end up sending the person in for evaluation anyway, and that can cause delays in getting the person on the job. Um, lack of fit testing is another problem. Uh, that's a series of exercises through which the employer ensures that each individual's respirator is the correct size, that it's comfortable, it fits, and it's effectively protecting them. Now, fit testing is an annual requirement when respirator use is mandatory. You can do fit testing in-house, but if you've never done one before, you probably want to get some outside help with the first few and that'll give you a better idea of how to go about it, get you a little experience. And there are some different tests allowable that you can use, and they depend on the type of the respirator. Uh, those are outlined in the standards Appendix X, which is mandatory. So now fit testing isn't all that terribly complicated if you have the right equipment. And then, of course, lack of training again. Training is going to be required again annually. So those are things to keep in mind. Now, uh, obviously COVID had a little bit of an impact on respiratory protection. Uh, for one, with respirators in short supply, N95s were not available, uh, you, you might not want to use them simply to do fit testing. And of course, if you rely on third-party medical providers to do them for you, uh, it might've been hard to get third-party providers on site for fear of exposure. So there's some OSHA enforcement memos listed here on this screen. Uh, OSHA allowed a little bit of leeway. They did not grant a full exception. So if you were about to do a fit test in April and no one could come on site to do it because of shutdowns in April of last year, for example, uh, you, you had a little bit of leeway. You could show your good faith efforts in attempting to comply, but that didn't mean you just got to stop. Um, so do, do look through those memos if you were in that, that position. 
In fact, one of the things OSHA did was even allow some non-NIOSH-approved filtering facepiece respirators in place of the N95 approved, again, just because of the short supply. So there's a big impact. All right, we'll move on to scaffolding. We're back into the construction area. And this one always makes uh, up near the top of the list. Again, as Travis said, uh, OSHA inspectors just driving by a site can see violations here. So one hazard that OSHA frequently finds and, and cites for is when there's holes in the scaffolding platform. Uh, those can be just as lethal as holes in any other surface. And adequate, complete construction is critical. You don't want just part of a platform. Uh, with a few exceptions, each platform on all levels has to be fully planked or decked between the uprights and the guardrails. Another common violation is not having an appropriate or adequate point of access for the scaffold. You might have a portable ladder, a hook-on ladder, or even walking from one scaffold to another. There are several options, but employers get into trouble when they uh, allow workers to climb the cross braces, or they just set a pallet of bricks next to it so that workers can climb up on that. that that's not an appropriate access point. Fall protection, of course, is another big issue because uh, you're up high. In this case, OSHA says that employees must be protected at 10 feet, but it depends on the type of scaffold as to what form of fall protection is acceptable. In some cases, personal fall arrest system might be needed. Uh, in, in other cases, um, you might have a guardrail. So it, it kind of depends on what you're working with. Now, the key, of course, to staying in compliance with this is to have a competent person. The standard requires a competent person to perform duties. Those include selecting and directing employees. They got to be able to evaluate the weather for outdoor work. Uh, they got to train employees who are involved in erecting and disassembling and moving and operating, repairing, maintaining, even inspecting scaffolds. A lot of work to be done there. Uh, they've got to inspect scaffolds before use, and if there's an incident, you know, something bangs into it. And, of course, make sure the scaffold is structurally sound, because if these are not put together properly, you've got potential problems. Now, as you look at scaffolding violations by industry, not a lot of surprises here. A lot of masonry sizing, framing, roofing contractors, pretty much what you'd expect where uh, scaffolding would be heavily used. All right, I'm going to pass things back over to Travis to talk about ladders. Yep, and for this one, we'll, uh, we'll stay in the construction industry again or at least the, uh, the construction standards, we should point out that, um, you know, the way OSHA views construction versus general industry, um, it's not necessarily just because a company is, you know, considers themselves a construction contractor, doesn't mean they can't be involved in general industry work, uh, nor does it mean a general industry employer can't potentially be engaged in construction work. But, uh, you know, for the most part, that holds true. Um, anyway, common violation number five on our list is uh, regarding ladders. And one of the big ones is when ladders do not extend three feet above the upper landing surface. So OSHA obviously does require that uh, when you use portable ladders uh, for access to an upper landing surface. Um, the ladder side rails must extend at least three feet above the upper landing surface or when that's not possible um, because of the ladder's length, then the ladder must be secured at its top 
to a uh, support that won't deflect and a grasping device such as a grab rail must be provided uh, to help to help the workers um, in mounting and dismounting the ladder. And that's again one of those uh, violations that that's very easy for OSHA inspectors to notice if they drive by or the general public. Another violation with ladders that was cited very uh, frequently was someone using a ladder for something that it's not designed for. For example, using the ladder as a walking platform or a lifting device. OSHA prohibits these practices. Um, and to that end, OSHA also requires that ladders be in good shape. So if there's any uh, structural defects such as broken or missing rungs, cleats or steps, broken or split rails, corroded components, really anything that's defective, uh, you need to immediately mark it in some kind of a manner so that a worker knows not to use it um, or it must be repaired. Unfortunately, a lot of employers let that one slip over time. Um, so, you know, that's one of those things that training as well as pre-use inspection really are the, the key to keeping ladders in good shape. We look at those by uh, by industry segment. You'll notice they're exactly the same as the fall protection violations that we saw earlier on. Probably not a coincidence that that's the case. The same same employers who are having problems with fall protection probably are you know apt to have struggles with their ladder uh, usage as well. I'll turn it back over to Ed here for. Uh, for number six, back to general industry. Thank you, Travis. All right, so lockout tagout, we talked about this made the top 10 list. And of course, as we said, as if you're going by top violation amounts, penalty amounts, this is even higher. Workers who service or maintain machines or equipment, of course, could be seriously injured. They could be killed if hazardous energy is not controlled properly. That's why OSHA has this standard. So this requires employers to implement a program with procedures to control the unexpected release of that energy uh, during any kind of service or maintenance. Now, this applies to electrical energy, mechanical, hydraulic, uh, pneumatic, chemical, thermal energy, and other sources that might be in the machines or equipment. A lot of that can be hazardous to workers. It can be moving parts, and you know if you've got presses, shears, uh, just shutting off the electricity uh, might might not do it if the if the if the blade is up in the air and has gravity potential to come down. So in terms of violations, you know, looking at the second bullet here, it's vital to develop an energy control program that includes procedures, specific procedures for that lockout tagout. Uh, they need to be specific to your equipment or for each type of equipment, which you know could be different, all types of lathes, all types of mixers, as opposed to every individual machine. But the key point uh, make sure you've grouped properly and don't overlook things. Things like boilers, uh, conveyors, conveyor belts, and other equipment may require lockout tagout procedures. And remember, OSHA does require that all forms of energy be isolated. And they require that machines have a method for locking out when that's possible. So do take a look at all the equipment in your facility that might need lockout tagout procedures. I mean, if there's Again, reaching into a, a danger area or past a guard, you're going to need those procedures. 
The lack of training, of course, is a big issue. Tags and devices, misusing tags doesn't come up as a lot. The fifth bullet, though, is to formally inspect the lockout tagout procedures. That's what you probably call the periodic inspection. And that has to be done at least annually to ensure that the requirements of the standard are being met and that the procedures are adequate. And that needs to be done for each energy control procedure. Now, the periodic inspections, again, both make sure your procedures don't have any deficiencies. You want to make sure that people aren't just following what they know to do, that, that somebody new could actually step-by-step step go through the procedures. And that the in inspection, second one, is that the inspection include a review between the inspector and each authorized employee who may use that procedure. Again, to make sure they understand how to implement and use it. If procedures change or if they were improperly written, uh, we don't want people just saying, no, no, we skipped that step, or, well, there's a missing step here, you need to know about it, then you got to update that procedure. So keep in mind, if there's multiple authorized employees, though, you can do this review in a group setting if that makes things more efficient. And then, of course, a final tip is to account for any special situations in your energy control program. Uh, if lockout's going to go across multiple shifts, you need to be able to change shifts and you know, handle the locks and keys over different shift changes. Uh, contractors may be on site for some specialty work. You may need to coordinate with them. Or if you're doing a group lockout, you have more than one person. So all of those are considerations. Now, as far as which companies get cited for this, uh, you do see a big difference from other violations. Again, no construction contractors here. Uh, we said lockout, tagout is primarily general industry, but even things like HASCOM can apply to, to construction. But these are all manufacturers, and it's, it's not a lot of surprises where these types of machines, whether it's machine shops, wood shops, you know, where this type of machinery gets used most heavily. And then I'm going to turn things over to Travis to jump back for powered industrial trucks. Okay, thank you, Ed. So yeah, number seven on our list is the powered industrial truck standard, 1910-178. Uh, big reason this one makes the list year in and year out is because there are so many types of lift trucks that fall under this standard across a wide variety of industries. So when we're talking powered industrial trucks, this includes forklifts, powered pallet jacks, stand-up rider lift trucks, order pickers, uh, and so on. So that's one issue, is not training operators on all the different types of equipment that they operate. Um, even something like a powered pallet jack does require training, and that training has to be specific to the type of equipment. That doesn't mean you, you, know, you don't necessarily have to train each operator on every pallet jack just because it's made by a different manufacturer. But you can't allow someone who only has been trained on forklifts to operate a powered pallet jack just because, well, they have forklift training. So, you know, they surely know how to use, um, you know, a powered pallet jack. You, you have to train, the training requirement is for each type of equipment. Also, formal refresher training needs to be conducted uh, under certain circumstances. There's no set frequency, and that, that probably surprises some people. I get that question a lot. You know, how often do I have to do retraining? Um, you actually only need to do it 
when there's an accident or near miss, the operator is observed operating unsafely, or there's a, an evaluation that reveals a deficiency. So that's refresher training. But the other aspect, which does have a set time period, is that all operators must be evaluated at least once every three years. And generally what OSHA says that entails is, you know, watching the operator just in their regular course of operation. It doesn't have to be pull them aside to do training. You can, you can watch them while they're doing their regular work, make sure they're, they're, they're performing everything properly, and then ask a few questions to make sure that they have, you know, they understand safety rules and have retained, um, you know, some of the, uh, the knowledge that you want to you want to test them on, and then you would issue a new certification at that time. A couple of other ones you can see listed there for powered industrial trucks, um, not inspecting the equipment daily prior to use, using unauthorized attachments. That's a big one, particularly when we're talking about personnel platforms or man baskets. You'll hear them called. Uh, when you when you get something like that, a front end attachment, you have to get the manufacturer's prior written approval in order to utilize it. And if you cannot do that, either because the manufacturer doesn't respond or they say no, then OSHA gives you one other option, which is to have a uh, professional engineer conduct the same type of safety evaluation that the manufacturer would. Um, and then if they determine that it's safe, then you can go about go about using it. So definitely, um, you know, that's a big one. And then the last thing here, just not enforcing the, the plant rules. OSHA does not list. They don't say, you know, you have to have a five mile per hour speed limit or 10 mile per hour. They leave it up to the company to set that limit as well as enforce those limits. So you want to make sure that uh, that you've determined what a good speed is and then that all the operators are following that you've communicated it to them and operators are following looking at the violations by industry i think these would be what you would expect for powered industrial trucks warehousing and storage where obviously that equipment is in heavy rotation but uh, you know even down masonry contractors where we're you know using rough terrain uh, forklifts. They're pretty much everywhere, but I think these are these are obviously the, the big ones. Ed, do you want to take us to uh, number eight? Yep, we're getting down to the final two here. Uh, <clears throat> we earlier mentioned uh, fall protection in construction was a big one. Well, related to that is training on fall protection in construction. Obviously, if the employees are going to be using fall protection equipment, they got to be trained and not surprisingly, they don't use it, but sometimes they're not even trained or not trained properly or uh, trained in the particular hazards. So you do have to have a competent person conduct the training. I mean, the, each employee has got to be able to recognize the hazards. They got to know what procedures to follow. And that competent person has to do that training. Covering Things to cover include like the nature of the fall hazards in the work area, uh, the correct procedures for erecting or maintaining or inspecting the fall protection systems they're using. You know, if you're using a harness, you need, need to know how to inspect that. Uh, the use or operation of any guardrail systems, safety net systems, warning lines, 
controlled access zones, whatever you're using, everybody needs to understand what they are and how they're used. Of course, the role that each employee plays in that safety monitoring system, uh, the limitations of these things, uh, especially on mechanical equipment. When you're working on roofs, there may be limitations on uh, the use of equipment up there. The correct procedures for handling and storage of equipment and materials when you're er erecting overhead protection. The role of employees in the fall protection plan. They got to know what they're doing. A competent person has to go through a lot of that. Uh, the employer also has to verify that training was provided through a written certification. That's got to have the name or other identity of the employee trained, the dates of the training, and the signature of the person who conducted the training or the signature of the employer. Now, you can rely on training conducted by another employer if you think that's adequate, in which case your certification record would indicate the date that you determined the training was adequate rather than the date that the training was delivered. Now, if an employer has reason to believe that any employee who's already been trained maybe doesn't have the understanding or skill needed to work safely, then retraining's got to be done. Apparently, the initial training wasn't good enough. Maybe they forgot something. But this might happen because uh, changes in the workplace make the previous training obsolete. Uh, maybe you're changing the type of systems you're using or equipment used. Or... Uh, you might notice some inadequacies in the employee's knowledge or use of fall protection systems that's kind of indicating, hey, they don't seem to have the skill or understanding needed to use this stuff safely. Now, as for where these violations come up, uh, again, not going to be a lot of surprises. A lot of these roofing contractors, framing contractors, uh, pretty much the same as the fall protection violations. And now, Travis, down to number nine. All right, that one keeps us in the construction industry, and uh, but it certainly finds similar hazards in general industry. It's just a different standard, um, and that's you know not providing proper eye and face protection. You think about construction sites, obviously, you know there's stuff flying around, nail guns being used, all kinds of um, of things falling, sawing. Uh, numerous eye hazards. So, um, you know, the big, the big thing here is to conduct a hazard assessment and determine exactly where the hazards are and what type of protection would be needed. And you'll note here that we have uh, face shields being uh, listed. A common misconception among employers and employees is that face shields provide adequate eye protection. Uh, in reality, Face shields can only be used as secondary protection uh, for the eyes in addition to safety goggles or spectacles. So just keep that in mind that you want to do the hazard assessment and that's general industry or construction. You want to, that's always, you know, the first step in determining the PPE that's needed. As for where those, uh, where we saw those violations, Roofing and framing contractors, again, no surprises there when you think about the tools that they're using and the activities that they're, that they're performing. And uh, back to Ed to wind us down here with number 10. Yeah, I get, I get the last one, machine guarding. So again, number of machines in industry, everybody's got a machine somewhere, doesn't something. 
and so guarding is frequently cited. Now, as we've said, these violations tend to be pretty costly because there's potential for serious injury. Uh, in particular, machine guarding standard here, 212, is cited the most often, and this is the, the catch-all requirement. Uh, it doesn't address specific machines or tell you exactly how to guard dangerous parts, but it does require that employees be protected from those hazard zones, those dangerous parts, by some method. And, of course, at a point of operation, be guarded. Now, we do see this used a lot to cite employers for lack of guarding on conveyors, uh, injection molding machines, metal cutting equipment, uh, hydraulic presses, balers, really anything that OSHA doesn't have a machine-specific standard for. So take conveyors. Uh, OSHA expects those rotating parts to be guarded. You can have in-running nip points. And the same goes for press brakes. Uh, there are some issues, you know, and some various options for guarding. There could be light curtains, uh, could be safe distance, things like that. Depends on the circumstances. But you got to figure out what, what's appropriate. Another one, lathes. Shears are commonly cited under this standard. And with lathes, it's sometimes a missing chip guard where OSHA believes one is needed. Or with shears, it's that the hold downs or the height of the gap at the shear point that might grab OSHA's attention. Now, aside from the requirement to protect employees from dangerous parts, this standard is also where OSHA requires that machines be anchored to prevent movement. So if you've got uh, you know, drill presses, things like that, that you bring in, you work them at a, working on them at a fixed location that could be moved, they could tip over, well, 212 is the standard that requires you to anchor that equipment. Now, as for where we see these violations, obviously not a surprise, machine shops right up at the top there, but any place where a lot of moving equipment can be used, you know, printing, even there, you see a lot, you can imagine a lot of in-running nip points, conveyors, things like that. But again, this is a standard that uh, can apply to practically any general industry standard. You know, in a related thing on this, uh, we mentioned that number 10 was section 212, that's the general machine guarding standard. There are other machine-specific standards for power presses, woodworking equipment, power transmission components. Uh, and if you looked at the violations that were cited in those and we added them all up, all of the, all of the different machine guarding standards, this would probably move much higher up on the list, possibly even to number one spot. So, so machine guarding is a critical issue. On the slide right now, again, we have a few other issues that you might see. These are not necessarily cited under the mach general machine guarding standard, but we do see them through some other machine-specific standard or even through the general duty clause. You know, e-stops missing. Um, if they're too guarded, people don't want them to be bumped into, so they put a, a control over it that prevents someone from pushing it in an emergency, things like that. So this is something to take away uh, and keep in mind as you evaluate your own workplace. All right, yeah, definitely uh, take a look if you have uh, grinders in your facility. Make sure those work rests ma uh, maintain the adjustment as well as the tongue guard. Um, those are, again, it didn't make the top 10 list, but those get cited uh, quite often with some high penalty amounts. It's one of the uh, emphasis areas for OSHA. So definitely you take a look at those if you do have grinders. And uh, so just to wrap up here, um, 
What can you do to keep from being cited with one of these top violations? First off, you can take a look at the list we just went over and you know, make sure you have those items covered. And then as a second step, take a look at the most cited standards for your industry. And you can do that through the OSHA website. And we've put the uh, URL, the address on your screen right now uh, on the slide. So that'll tell you, you can drill down by your uh, industry code and find out you know, what's being cited specifically. You can also break it down by size of employer too, if you wanna do it that way. Another thing you can do is conduct self-inspections. Um, we have a ton of interactive tools in the safety management suite to help you find potential violations before OSHA does. And these are checklists that you can customize to your operations. And then finally, take a look at your written programs. These are often one of the first things OSHA looks at when they do start an inspection. So make sure that you not only have any required programs, but that the program is implemented. Uh, you don't want it just to be sitting around. That's where a lot of employers who get cited um, fall short, not implementing the program. All right, and we're about to start taking your questions, but we do want to offer everyone another opportunity to get a free trial to J.J. Keller Safety Management Suite. So if we could launch that poll up again. Uh, for those of you who joined us maybe a little late along with your trial, if you want to sign up, we will also send you our white paper on OSHA's top 10 violations. Again, very similar to the material we covered today, but um, <clears throat> a little more depth and, and kind of a handy reference with uh, kind of the text of what what Travis and I were talking about, and so you don't just have the slides here. Uh, so let us know your interest, and we'll get that sent out to you. And with that, we are going to start getting to your questions. All right, well, excellent. Great job, Travis and Ed. We thank you for your insights and expertise. Before we do start that Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this presentation. We really appreciate your input because it'll help us improve future webcasts. We also appreciate you taking the extra time to offer feedback. Um, additionally, and this is just in response to a common question that was in the Q&A box, a copy of the slides will be made available. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Um, now we'll get to some questions. Um, first one says, we don't have to keep a 300 log by NAICS code, but do we still have to report fatalities and hospitalizations? Uh, Travis, you mind if I take that one? <clears throat> no, go ahead. All right, so so this is one of the things we saw uh, as one of the top violations that came up was failure to report hospitalizations. There is no exception from that requirement. So OSHA has an exception from a 300 log for very small employers under 10 employees, and they have some exceptions for low hazard industries uh, by your NAICS code, your, your national in industry classification. But there is no exception from reporting fatalities or hospitalizations, amputations. So no matter what industry you're in, you still need to report those. And I think that's something that if people aren't <clears throat> required to have a 300 log, they might overlook because they're not digging around in Part 1904. But yeah, there's, there, everybody's got to report those. Even if you've only got two employees and you run a coffee shop, you, you're still covered by that. So hope that covers it. Next one, how are scissor lifts regulated in warehouse operation? Are they powered industrial trucks? What kind of fall protection is required? Uh, 
Uh, you mean you want to take that one, Ed, or do you want me to grab it? Can you get that one? <clears throat> yeah. So um, scissor scissor lifts are not considered by OSHA to be powered industrial trucks. Um, it's kind of one of those things that's is a little bit in between, you know, whether it's a aerial lift, whether it's a powered industrial truck. OSHA has said in a lot of cases they consider them to be scaffolding. So the, the ultimate answer is, you know, in general industry, OSHA is probably going to cite a scissor lift safety under um, the general duty clause of the OSHA Act. Uh, a lot of the same, you know, idea, same concepts apply as far as training, inspection, maintenance, and whatnot. Uh, it's just the big difference is they won't be cited under 1910.178. And obviously, the, the fall protection issue is a little bit different because uh, you're dealing with, um, you know, workers are being elevated. So you have to ensure that there's, um, that the guardrails, the railings on the sides meet, um, you know, the mid rail, top rail height requirements, and as well as the force strength requirement that is in the uh, subpart B fall protection regulations. So, um, so yeah, they're a little, they're a little wonky in that you think OSHA has, they're so commonplace, you would think OSHA would have a specific standard but somehow or the other, they've kind of fallen, fallen through the cracks. So you kind of have to go with, um, with piecemeal as far as putting together, okay, fall protection covers this aspect of it. Um, you know, maybe I'll use a general duty clause, the manufacturer's instructions as far as what to inspect. Um, so it's, it takes a little more work on the employer's part. What standard required uh, storage racks to be anchored? All right, I can, I can take that one as well. Um, this is another one that OSHA does not have a specific standard for, but they cite it a lot under the general duty clause. And um, they reference an industry standard called um, RMI-MH 16.1. And that MH stands for material handling. Basically, it's the Rack Manufacturers Institute's safety standard, it's an ANSI, American National Standard, but that standard says that all rack columns must be anchored per the manufacturer's specifications. So um, again, gets cited under the general duty clause of the OSHA Act, and OSHA does expect uh, your industrial storage racks to be anchored per manufacturer's in, uh, instructions. Is there a minimum age to operate a forklift? Um, I'll grab that one actually. And I've seen that one a lot. It's, it's actually 18 years of age, but that's not under OSHA. It's actually under the, uh, department of labor's child labor laws. So federal law says, uh, in order to operate a powered industrial truck, you have to be at least 18 years of age. It's, it's considered too hazardous for 17 year olds or younger to drive them. Um, so, but that's a good question. It does come up a lot, but it's a pretty short answer. It's 18. You have to be at least 18 to drive a forklift or other powered industrial truck. Next one, uh, would you consider there to be a current uptick in OSHA inspections? I can take that one. Um, yeah, I, I would. And there's, I think, two reasons for it. The first is we're kind of getting back, you know, to operating somewhat normally. More businesses are now open. Um, so the more businesses that are open, the more inspections that can be done. Um, as well as, you know, inspectors are, we've learned enough to protect 
inspectors as far as getting, you know, getting their respiratory protection, getting them out there to conduct the inspections. The other thing is the administration that changed over uh, is definitely signaling more of a focus and emphasis on inspections and enforcement of OSHA standards. So there's a little bit, little bit less of that um, under the prior administration. It looks like there's going to be going to be more under the current. All right, well, we've got time guys for, for one more question. Um, it says, you'd said that respiratory protection moved up. To what extent was that related to COVID or could it maybe be related to just the, the mask wearing and just sort of how that's out there and, and being, being more of an everyday thing? So yeah, I can take that one too. Um, I think it's absolutely uh, related to to COVID, um, and in spe specifically, I think it's related to healthcare operations because we have to keep in mind that when we're talking face coverings or the masks that the general public are wearing, those are not considered respirators, so they would not be cited under um, the respirator standard 1910.134. If if a you know if a company was not providing or ensuring that their let's say a grocery store worker was not wearing a face covering. Uh, where we're talking respiratory protection is, you know, healthcare operations where they actually are required to wear something like an N95 or higher, um, and they're not, they didn't do it because of the pandemic. And that could be nursing homes, that could be any type of healthcare operations. So that's, that's where you saw the bulk of, of those respiratory protection um, violations, I think, and that's why, that's why it bumped up. Well, thank you. Um, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Once again, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey to provide your feedback. Uh, with that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Travis Roden, Ed Zaleski, everyone at JJ Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.